This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Nothing and Kindred Subjects by Hilaire Belloc. Section 8 On a Dog and a Man Also. There lived in the middle of the wheel, upon the northern edge of a small wood, where a steep brow of orchard pasture goes down into a little river, a recluse, who is of middle age and possessed of all the ordinary accomplishments, that is, French and English literature are familiar to him. He can himself compose, he has read his classical Latin, and can easily decipher such Greek as he has been taught in youth. He is unmarried. He is by birth a gentleman. He enjoys an income sufficient to give him food and wine, and has for companion a dog who, by the standard of dogs, is somewhat more elderly than himself. This dog is called Argus. Not that he has a hundred eyes, or even two. Indeed, he has but one, for the other, or right eye, he lost the sight of long ago from luxury and lack of exercise. This dog Argus is neither small nor large. He is brown in color and covered, though now but partially, with curly hair. In this he resembles many other dogs. But he differs from most of his breed in a further character, which is that by long association with a recluse he has acquired a human manner that is unholy. He is fond of affected poses. When he sleeps it is with that abandonment of fatigue only naturally to be found in mankind. He watches sunsets and listens mournfully to music. Cooked food is dearer to him than raw, and he will eat nuts, a monstrous thing in a dog, and proof of corruption. Nevertheless, or rather, on account of all this, the dog Argus is exceedingly dear to his master. And of both I had the other day a singular revelation, when I set out at evening to call upon my friend. The sun had set, but the air was still clear, and it was light enough to have shot a bat, had there been bats about, and had one had a gun, when I knocked at the cottage door and opened it. Right within one comes to the first of the three rooms which the recluse possesses, and there I found him tenderly nursing the dog Argus, who lay groaning in the armchair and putting on all the airs of a Christian man at the point of death. The recluse did not even greet me, but asked me only in a hurried way how I thought the dog Argus looked. I answered gravely, and in a low tone, so as not to disturb the sufferer, that as I had not seen him since Tuesday, when he was for an elderly dog in the best of health, he certainly presented a sad contrast. But that perhaps he was better than he had been some few hours before, and that the recluse himself would be the best judge of that. My friend was greatly relieved at what I said, and told me that he thought the dog was better, compared at least with the same morning. Then, whether you believe it or not, he took him by the left leg just above the paw, and held it for a little time as though he were feeling a pulse, and said, He came back less than twenty-four hours ago. It seemed that the dog Argus, for the first time in fourteen years, had run away, and that for the first time in perhaps twenty or thirty years, the emotions of loss had entered into the life of the recluse, and that he had felt something outside books and outside the contemplation of the landscape about his hermitage. 
In a short time the dog fell into a slumber, as was shown by a number of grunts and yaps, which proved his sleep, for the dog Argus is of that kind which hunts in his dreams. His master covered him reverently rather than gently with an Indian cloth, and still leaving him in the armchair, sat down upon a common wooden chair close by, and gazed pitifully at the fire. For my part I stood up and wondered at them both, and wondered also at that in man by which he must attach himself to something, even if it be but a dog, a politician, or an ungrateful child. When he had gazed at the fire a little while, the recluse began to talk, and I listened to him talking. Even if they had not dug up so much earth to prove it, I should have known, said he, that the Odyssey was written not at the beginning of a civilization, nor in the splendor of it, but towards its close. I do not say this from the evening light that shines across its pages, for that is common to all profound work, but I say it because of the animals, and especially because of the dog, who was the only one to know his master, when that master came home a beggar to his own land, before his youth was restored to him, and before he got back his women and his kingship by the bending of his bow, and before he hanged the housemaids and killed all those who had despised him. But how, said I, for I am younger than he, can the animals in the poem show you that the poem belongs to a decline? Why, said he, because at the end of a great civilization the air gets empty, the light goes out of the sky, the gods depart, and men in their loneliness put out a groping hand, catching at the friendship of and trying to understand whatever lives and suffers as they do. You will find it never fail that where a passionate regard for the animals about us or even a great tenderness for them is to be found. There is also to be found decay in the state. I hope not, said I. Moreover, it cannot be true, for in the thirteenth century, which was certainly the healthiest time we ever had, animals were understood, and I will prove it to you in several carvings. He shrugged his shoulders and shook his head, saying, In the rough and in general it is true, and the reason is the reason I have given you, that when decay begins, whether of a man or of a state, there comes with it an appalling and torturing loneliness in which our energies decline into a strong affection for whatever is constantly our companion, and for whatever is certainly present upon earth, for we have lost the sky. Then if the senses are so powerful in the decline of the state, there should come at the same time, said I, a quick forgetfulness of the human dead, and an easy change of human friendship. There does, he answered, and to that there was no more to be said. I know it by my own experience, he continued, when yesterday at sunset I looked for my dog Argus and could not find him. I went out into the wood and called him. The darkness came, and I found no trace of him. I did not hear him barking far off, as I have heard him before when he was younger, and went hunting for a while and three times that night I came back out of the wild into the warmth of my house, making sure he would have returned, but he was never there. The third time I had gone a mile out to the gamekeepers to give him his money, if Argus should be found, and I asked him as many questions and as foolish as a woman would ask. Then I sat upright into the night 
thinking that every movement of the wind outside of the drip of water was the little pad of his step coming up the flagstones to the door. I was even in the mood where men see unreal things, and twice I thought I saw him passing quickly between my chair and the passage to the further room. But these things are proper to the night, and the strongest thing I suffered for him was in the morning. It was, as you know, very bitterly cold for several days. They found things dead in the hedgerows, and there was perhaps no running water between here and all the downs. There was no shelter from the snow. There was no cover for my friend at all. And when I was up at dawn with a faint light about, a driving wind full of sleet filled all the air. Then I made certain that the dog Argus was dead, and what was worse, that I should not find his body, that the old dog had got caught in some snare, or that his strength had failed him through the cold, as it fails us human beings also, upon such nights, striking at the heart. Though I was certain that I would not see him again, yet I went on foolishly and aimlessly enough, plunging through the snow from one spiny to another, and hoping that I might hear a whine. I heard none, and if the little trail had made in his departure might have been seen in the evening, long before that morning, the drift would have covered it. I had eaten nothing, and yet it was noon when I returned, pushing forward to the cottage against the pressure of the storm. When I found there, miserably crouched, trembling, half-dead, in the lee of a little thick yew beside my door, the dog Argus. And as I came, his tail just wagged, and he just moved his ears, but he had not the strength to come near me, his master. A Greek phrase omitted. I carried him in and put him here, feeding him by force, and I have restored him. All this the recluse said to me with as deep and as restrained emotion as though he had been speaking of the most sacred things, as indeed for him these things were sacred. It was therefore a mere inadvertence in me and an untrained habit of thinking aloud which made me say, Good heavens, what will you do when the dog Argus dies? At once I wished I had not said it, for I could see that the recluse could not bear the words. I looked therefore a little awkwardly beyond him, and was pleased to see the dog Argus lazily opening his one eye and surveying me with torpor and with contempt. He was certainly less moved than his master. Then in my heart I prayed that of these two, unless the god would make them both immortal, and catch them up into whatever place is better than the wheel, or unless he would grant them one death together upon one day, that the dog Argus might survive my friend, and that the recluse might be the first to dissolve that long companionship. For of this I am certain, that the dog would suffer less. For men love their dependents much more than do their dependents love them. And this is especially true of brutes, for men are nearer to the gods. The End of Section 8